This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, everyone. My name is Zach Lutz. Uh, I am senior pastor here at Trinity Church. That's a new role that uh, I'm walking into of sorts. And as we... Thanks. Ah, now I'm really embarrassed. Um, and as we like get to know each other better and you guys get to hear more and more of my sermons, you're going to find out that I really am a sucker for children's movies. Like, I really love kids' movies. And so one that I want to talk about today is The Incredibles. Um, the Incredibles is about a family of superheroes who live in a time that is uh, when the public opinion of superheroes has, has changed. And so, you know, people aren't about superheroes anymore. They're like, uh, no, they kind of need to stay away. So that they're doing their best, this family of husband, wife, and three kids, trying to live their lives as normally as possible, trying not to show their super abilities. Their kid who's really fast is trying to run slower in track, and he just can't do it. The villain, although not a superhero, believes that with the help of technology, he can make everyone super. And when everyone is super, so he says, no one will be. And although there are many themes in this movie that we could explore, uh, focusing on the villain I think is going to be interesting because despite not having any superhero abilities, he had some crisis of identity and in his self-determination decided, I'm going to be a superhero. He had a particular view of what greatness meant for him. In his pursuit of that greatness, ironically, he actually destroyed the greatness that he had, his ingenuity and his creativity with technology. Instead of using that for good and flourishing, he used that as villains do for destruction and pain. And so what we see with Syndrome, the villain in The Incredibles movie, is that he had some sort of crisis of identity and purpose. When he looked inward and he tried to self-determine who he was going to be, his identity was wrong, despite people telling him otherwise. And so, because he got his identity wrong, then his purpose was wrong in the world. And so the question that I want to come to our text with today is, do we know what our identity is? And do we know what our purpose is? And I think Luke is going to teach us that today from the book of Acts. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, in your bulletins, the little title there says Acts 19, I believe, uh, but we're actually in Acts 28. The text is correct, um, but forgot to change that little number. Whoops. Uh, so Acts chapter 28, beginning in verse 23. When they, the they is the Jews in Rome, had appointed a day for him, that's Paul who's in prison in Rome. So when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to them the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. 
For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So I mentioned at the beginning syndrome and his uh, struggle uh, as, as he was trying to self-determine his identity and his purpose and what problems that caused him. But I think there's another example, too, that we see sometimes. Um, and I'm sure most of you remember the show American Idol. And by the end of American Idol, you know, you have these great performers that have been found all across the United States battling out for who's going to be the best performer in America. But the first few episodes are really special for a whole nother reason. And we all kind of know, if we've seen the show, that you've got those people out there whose identity and purpose is clearly not to be an American Idol. And these poor souls get up there and they, they sing, and they're mostly there for our comedic relief, which is a little sad, and I hope that most of our compassionate bones twinge a little because we go, did they have no one in their life to tell them, like, don't do this? And I'm assuming that a lot of them probably did, and yet they so firmly believed this is what they were supposed to do. All jokes aside, I think that all of us ask very similar questions. We're wondering how it is do we know who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. And sometimes this comes up in normal times in our lives. So when we're about to accept a job in a career field that maybe we didn't plan, and we're like, is this, is this really what I'm going to do for like, this next period of time? Uh, sometimes it's choosing college majors. Like, these are normal times where we might be like, man, if I choose this major, that means I'm probably not going to be able to study this other field that I really liked as well. Sometimes it shows up in the form of a midlife crisis where we're looking back on our, on our work and going, did I do the right thing? Or we have some unforeseen circumstances in our lives happen where we have to leave something that was very fulfilling for us. And we wonder... Who am I, and what am I supposed to be doing? In the book of Acts, Luke is attempting throughout the entire book to give us a history of the early church. Jesus has died, risen again, and ascended into heaven, and he's commissioned his apostles to be witnesses they're supposed to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we've seen this unfold throughout our sermon series on Acts. Um, and throughout the book of Acts, you can see that. And so here, even at the very end of the book of Acts, Luke is still about that same purpose. It's about telling the story of the early church. But Luke wasn't just telling a story. Luke is attempting to form the early church. The history that he's telling is intended to give them an identity and give them a purpose. And he summarizes that with that word witness. So in our text today, this word witness does show up, um, but it shows up as the word testify, actually. And so at the beginning 
uh, in verse 23, from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. And then at the end in verse 31, we see those, a similar phrase again, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. So Luke is telling this last story about Paul that seems relatively mundane. We've had these like crazy shipwreck stories. And like if you look back in these chapters too, you're gonna find that he's like bitten by a snake that's supposed to kill him and lives. So we have these crazy stories that are happening. And then here at the end, at the, like, the end of the story, it's just this mundane little task where Paul shows up in Rome, asked to talk to the Jewish leaders, and he gets to talk to them, and he bears witness about the kingdom of God and about Jesus Christ. And the reason that it is mundane is because Luke is intending his audience, whether it was the first century that he was writing to, <clears throat> excuse me, or even us today, to tell us that our purpose is to bear witness. And our witness can be summarized in bearing witness about the kingdom of God and about Jesus Christ. And the, the, I'm going to kind of take those in reverse order because Jesus Christ would be what gives us our identity, and the kingdom of God is what gives us our purpose. So as we go forward today, those are going to be our two main points, <clears throat> excuse me, um, that we find our identity in Jesus Christ, and we're supposed to bear witness to that, and we find our purpose in understanding the kingdom of God with Paul. So first, our identity in Christ. Some of the things that we see uh, in Acts 28 in this mundane story, right, Paul has just showed up in Rome. He's a prisoner. He's going to be there for two whole years at his own expense. He wants to talk to the Jewish leaders because he's been uh, accused by Jewish leaders at basically every place that he's been of stirring up these things. And he's like, not, I mean, there's a pragmatic aspect where he just wants to get ahead of it. And he's like, oh, maybe I can hedge this off and I can, you know, kind of win these people over to my side. But he's also firmly convinced that he wants to bear witness to these people. And bearing witness to Jesus Christ meant uh, communicating to them through the prophets and Moses in the Old Testament because his listeners primarily found their identity through their religion that was based on Moses, prophets, and the Old Testament. But I would argue that our identities in this room are not primarily formed off of the text of the Old Testament. And so we're going to do a little bit of investigation on, what our, on how our identities are, are formed. Oof, man, making those like vowel sounds is tripping me up. How our identities are formed in our Western culture. And one definition of that, or one word used to describe that has been called expressive individualism. This is the idea that is behind all of the other ideas on how we become who we are, expressive individualism. And here's a definition, that each one of us has their own way of realizing their humanity and that they are called to live that out, express it, rather than conform to models imposed by others, especially institutions. So our culture's essentially saying, and you can see this uh, in The Incredibles, you can see this sometimes in American Idol, you can see this in so much stuff, but we're supposed to look inside of ourselves, find that thing that is most truly us, live that out in the world, and then we're going to find fulfillment. 
A little example. A parent that says to their child, oh, thank you. My wife, everyone. A parent says to their child, honey, we don't care what you grow up to do. We just want you to do what you love. Now, partially this could be taken to understand, like, my dad is in uh, IT. And so, like, if we had the expectation in our culture that just, like, I would, of course, do IT, then this would be, like, an important saying to have. Because it'd be like, man, we would just want you to do what you love, even if it's another career field. Our culture usually doesn't have those sorts of, like, expectations from parent to child. Sometimes we do. Um, But usually what this is doing is asking the child to, I mean, subtly, and and this is the thing, I think a lot of us have received this, and a lot of us give this to our children as well. Uh, We're not immune to this in the church. And so what we're doing is we're asking that child or teenagers as you're in school to look within yourself and determine what it is that you want to do and be. And that pressure is immense. And I think we see it in the skyrocketing numbers of anxiety, depression, stress, and worry. We are deeply anxious about who we are. Did I miss my chance? Do I believe that I am one way, but the system's just not letting me live it? The problem with our culture's approach and with this approach of us Um, trying to look inward to find who we truly are is that it's constantly changing. Sigmund Freud, who I would disagree with in many ways on what a person is, uh, despite that, says that if people look inward to find meaning and purpose, they will only find a chaotic chasm of warring passions which are ever-changing and never-stable. We're kind of fickle people. (laughs) We change what we want to do from from day to day. And so if we decide to look inward solely to find who we are and so live that out in the world, we become a bunch of navel-gazing, therapy-hungry people who desperately believe that with the right cocktail of exercise, prescription drugs, and therapy, we will finally see ourselves clearly enough to find fulfillment and happiness out in the world. If I could just know who I am, then I'll know how to be happy. And like I said, this even happens in the church. Sometimes uh, it's as simple as us, you know, like our families went to church. We think it's a pretty good moral thing to do. And so we want our kids to grow up in the church, and so we bring our kids to church because we think that that makes them good people. But it's fundamentally about me and my kids and their well-being. On the therapy side of things, we like the songs that bring soothing to our soul. And so I go and I sing these songs because I know that like my family history might have this history in here. And so I think there's a spiritual connection throughout the ages. And so I come to church and worship because it's who, who we are and it, and it helps me get through my day. It helps me get through my week. One writer said it this way with expressive individualism in the church. Expressive individualism does not empty the church of its members. It merely fills the pews with people who see their church attendance as another expression of their own identities. An aid 
in their own pursuit of happiness. The church has limited, if any, real authority. The mighty me stays enthroned, even when the mighty me sits enthroned in a church pew. Now, I do, I, I want to be very clear that, like, I do this. I'm not saying that there's, like, some of you out here who struggle with this and the holy, holier ones of us don't. Our culture is describing a way of forming our identity that is really, really difficult to understand and challenge. And so today we're going to look with Paul and, and Luke and see what they find their solution to be. And for Paul, it was saying, for the Jews, you can't find your identity in your religiosity of the Old Testament. And so to us, he might say, you can't find your identity by looking inward because it's never staying the same and you'll always be disappointed. You must find your identity in Christ and in Christ alone. That's why he will spend so much time over and over and over bearing witness to Jesus Christ. So what I want to do for our identity piece is really just show how our identity is being rooted in Jesus Christ challenges our cultural assumptions of how identity should be formed. So the first thing, when we look outside of ourselves and we look to Jesus and we look through the word and we find what Jesus says about who we are, first and foremost, we find that every human being is an image bearer of God. From the very beginning of Genesis to the very end of Revelation, everyone is created with an immense amount of dignity. It's just how God operates. Now, when the fall happened and sin entered into the world, yes, it was broken and twisted, and some of those people used those great gifts kind of like syndrome to do awful things. And we can condemn those just as God would, but we still recognize, nevertheless, that every single human being is worthy. They don't have to find themselves to find their worth. They're worthy because God knitted them together. They're worthy because God made them. For those of us who rest our faith in Christ, there is another benefit that comes in the same uh, uh, sort of idea. So it's not just that we're image bearers, but we're also children of God. And the most succinct way to say this is that like anytime you're reading through the Old Testament and you're seeing God declare something to Jesus, like he's declaring that to you. When the voice of the Father comes down from heaven, he says, behold my son in whom I am well pleased. He's looking at us and he's saying, behold my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Behold my son in whom I'm well pleased. Our faith and our union with Christ changes our identity such that we don't have to go looking for it inside of ourselves, but we go to God's word and we hear it proclaimed over us about who we are. And the resounding answer over and over again is that you are worthy and you are loved and God delights in you. I don't think that's often what we hear from Scripture when we are reading it. And part of that has to do with 
the second thing that we learn about our identities being rooted in Christ, our identities uh, being rooted in Christ and outside of ourselves uh, means that we subject ourselves to that person being able to tell us who we are. And that also means that there's like some commands and stuff that we have to follow. So we uh, read some of the questions today about the Ten Commandments, and there's a little bit, you know, it's more robust uh, than that about what God commands us to do. Um, But ultimately, what we confess is, by bearing witness to our identity being outside of ourselves, is that Jesus Christ knows what's best for us. We are most truly ourselves when we yield to his commands. Now, I think one of the strongest places that we see this in our culture is confusion around sexual identity. And we're talking about identity today, and our culture says you need to look inward and figure out who you are and then declare that out into the world. And I'm proposing that the Bible speaks of a radically different way of finding your identity. Submission to Christ means that we must humbly deny ourselves in giving up our right to self-determination. And actually, as Americans, with our view of freedom, we have a distinct problem with doing that. We really like to believe that we are self-determined. Following Jesus means losing our identity so that we can truly find ourselves. Because Jesus himself said, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so the question naturally follows, and I don't know if you're picking up on this, about if I yield who I truly am, aren't we all just going to be the same? Like if we're all trying to be Christ-like, where does my uniqueness come in? What happens with those parts of me that feel distinctly uh, out of sync with our culture? What happens when I feel that angst of I don't belong? And to our discredit, our churches often uh, organize around these principles. Yes, everybody does look this way. We wear a certain kind of clothes. We smell a certain way. We do or do not have tattoos. We do our hair a certain way. We sing a certain kind of songs. It's a temptation for us to do that but when we, again, when we go outside of ourselves to find our identity and we submit ourselves to Christ's rule, what we find there again and again is that God who loves us as a child of God, but also a God who is infinitely creative. So I'm going to use a cheesy example. Fingerprints, you know, like Apple uses them to like unlock phones. Like they're unique to you. And the God who knit you together and gave you fingerprints sees you. He didn't ask you to find your identity in Christ and just become necessarily like everyone else. He asked you to find your identity in Christ and be uniquely you in it, in a way that only you can with only your fingerprints. He didn't spend the time making you so that he could ignore you. 
When we go outside of ourselves and we look in scripture, that is plastered on every page. We are uniquely loved by God. So when we find our identity outside of ourselves, uh, the next thing that necessarily changes is our purpose. Because if you have a different identity, then you start doing things differently in the world. And so Paul proclaimed not only Jesus Christ, but he also bore witness to the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is going to give us a purpose in the world. And it gave Paul a purpose in the world. And I think the most simple way um, to go about addressing it here in our passage is to look about that, that quote from Isaiah that he quotes from there. And it comes from Isaiah chapter six. Now just for some really short context, right? Isaiah is like 600 years before Paul. So Isaiah wrote this down way before Paul would say these words, way before Luke would record them. And so this quote from Isaiah is actually uh, like Paul's intending to do something with it. And what he's intending to do is confront his audience with the kind of people that they are. And you gotta remember that these are Jewish people. So if Isaiah was speaking to the Jewish people, Paul is now speaking to the Jewish people. And he's quoting to them something that God said to, about them 600 years previous. And it's that they are a hard-hearted people. They are a blind people. They are a deaf people. But even at the end of what he quotes, you can see that God says, like, lest they turn to me and I would heal them. If you were to actually go back to Isaiah chapter 6 and read that whole chapter, at the end you would actually see God's heart beat for the remnant of Israel that would return to him. You see, what Paul is doing there is he's confronting his audience with what their purpose was supposed to be. I don't have a lot of time today, so I'm going to try to do this as succinctly as I can. But one way to think about Israel's significance, they have this relationship with God in the Old Testament, and they were to exemplify to the world what it looked like to serve God correctly, to be a people of God with a specific purpose. And yet we see time and time again, they're kind of the examples. They give us glimpses of what a good king should and could look like and a good kingdom could and should look like, but they're just these little foretastes. Um, but what we see time and time again from Israel is that they can't do it. They looked inward and they don't have the strength to actually conform to who they're supposed to be. They need something better. They need someone better. They need someone who can actually change who they are. Jesus, in his ministry, would cause people who had never seen to see. People who had never heard to hear. And sin-hardened hearts to be softened. Paul, who saw himself in the line of these prophets who were proclaiming the kingdom of God, quoted to his Jewish brothers and sisters again, in this passage, this passage that they had been hearing for 600 years, which is that God is going to be faithful, but this is where God is going. 
Paul could see the, see the fruit of this prophecy, actually in some of the Jews who believed him. If you look in the passage, you'll see there that some believed in him and others did not. Paul can also see this as true even in his own life. A man who literally needed to be blinded by God so that he could see. Just a couple things of what this means for us today and our purpose. When we look outside of ourselves and we find our identities rooted in Christ, we are given a new purpose. And that purpose, along with all of God's people throughout history, has been to proclaim his kingdom come. And what that means is that we proclaim that there is a new way to look at the world that doesn't depend on just looking inward, but actually looking outward. And that we can be our truest selves when that happens. And that this kingdom is bigger than Paul or Jews or Abraham or Adam and Eve would have ever thought. It's reversing not just a few people, but it's going to raise everyone from the dead. It's going to make it so that there is no more death, there is no more pain. God's mission is enormous, but as I said before about how much he cares about your unique identity, in Ephesians, it says that he has created good works that beforehand that you should walk into. Your fingerprint is going to be over God's work. Like he invites you in such and has created you such that there are works that you're going to do in his kingdom. And it's going to show that it was uniquely you that did it. And of course, it's way bigger than any one of us or even any one church God has been doing this for thousands of years. But he's invited you in. And another thing that we can see, and this one's kind of small, is that you know, God works in ironic ways. So, so even, you know, Paul was really good at proclaiming the gospel, and I've said this before, and now he's in chains. He is literally hindered in his proclamation of the gospel, and yet it says in this passage that he proclaimed it and he was unhindered. The gospel was unhindered, even though Paul was hindered. And so when those times in our lives come up, where it seems that our identity and purposes have been shaken, and we're having to reorient, we can always look back and say, I don't exactly know how God is working through this. I'm not sure now what my unique role is, but I'm going to continue looking to Christ and continue trusting in that identity and in this purpose for the work that I'm supposed to do. The last thing we can see is in Paul's own life, and I'll conclude with this. Um, you know, 600 years before Jesus would come, Isaiah declared to the people of God that they were blind, deaf, and hard-hearted. Like God told them, hey, go tell these people this thing. And they'd be blind, deaf, and hard-hearted for like 600 more years. And despite all of their wickedness and rebellion, God says, I'm going to send my son to you. And I know that they're going to kill him. They're so blind and so deaf and so hard-hearted that they're going to kill my son. You know, Paul recognizes 
that he persecuted Christians before his conversion. I'm sure in some sense he was haunted by that. And yet he could boldly stand before these people and proclaim this prophecy to them because he saw in it a God that would send his own son to save the worst of us. And so I hope you know that no matter how blind, deaf, and hard-hearted you have been in your life, no matter what's stood between you and God, that God has still sent his son into the world to redeem you. And the call is to find your identity and purpose in him, to become part of his story and to finally be able to rest in who you are in Christ and not have to live with the worry and angst of finding it yourself.